my name's Richard Newton. I'm a, a professor of psychiatry at Monash University and uh, also work as a clinical director of a mental health service here in Victoria. This month's Let's Talk in Depth takes us into the mind of one of Australia's most experienced eating disorder clinicians. I had the privilege of spending some time with Professor Richard Newton when we explored how eating disorders almost always occur with other mental health conditions. He also took me through how eating disorders used to be treated back in the bad old days. Suffice to say, I'm glad that people like Richard have been there and done so much hard work to improve the outcomes of people who experience eating disorders, even though we've still got a long way to go. We've come a long way. And so Richard also serves on the boards of both Butterfly and Wandi Nerida. That's Butterfly's residential treatment centre on the Sunshine Coast. I've been working in eating disorders since the uh, 1980s. And back in the 1980s, people with eating disorders were essentially treated in a very coercive, um, inpatient model of care um, and were... The, the whole field of bulimia nervosa binge eating disorder was very poorly understood uh, and treatments were pretty miserable by and large. Co- co-occurring mental health issues is the rule. It's very, very unusual in my experience for people with an eating disorder to only have an eating disorder, uh, essentially because eating disorders are driven by, very often by, low self-esteem, high levels of anxiety, high levels of emotional sensitivity and uh, an experience, as well as depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, uh, previous uh, experiences of trauma, often uh, of different types over a prolonged period of time. And so, you know, one of the challenges and uh, of working uh, alongside people with eating disorders to help them recover is to identify which co-occurring mental health issues really require a specific therapeutic focus and uh, and which co-occurring issues, if you manage to help the person recover from their eating disorder, will actually improve as the eating disorder improves. Because, of course, mm-hmm. uh, a, a lot of co-occurring mental health issues are actually as a result of uh, the effects of starvation, the effects of binge eating, the effects of um, uh, the metabolic uh, instability that's associated with purging, etc. And so, of course, some uh, co-occurring mental health issues are very, somewhat to very effectively mitigated and reduced as far as the person with an eating disorder is concerned by their eating disorder. If you uh, feel empty and hopeless and despairing and, uh, and and one of the things that you can do to you is to nurture yourself by eating, uh, then you eat. And so you, that's, you know, one of the things that binge eating does is it helps people fill themselves with something, even though it then becomes quite an aggressive, self-harming, hurtful attack on themselves, again, because driven by that uh, low self-esteem and and guilt and sense that the person needs to punish themselves. But that's kind of an example of how uh, an eating disorder 
can actually manage some of the co-occurring mental health issues around it. If you've been depressed or very, very anxious for all of the time that you can remember, and if you lose weight, that depression and low mood becomes flat and blunted, then that may be the best you felt in your mood for a very long time. And mm. that's a direct result of starvation. And so for some people, the eating disorder appears to be a solution to some of their co-occurring mental health issues that no health professional has been able to help them with. And I think that adds to people's reluctance to try recovery because they're so anxious that some of this other stuff will come back. It just makes so much sense. I've spoken to a lot of people in recovery who had to deal with the fact that they grieved the eating disorder. They missed it. They really missed having that in their life. And I guess what you've just explained kind of explains that somewhat. I think it explains some of it, but but also having an eating disorder, it's something that people can rely on. You know, some people talk to me very much about it's the one thing that they can look to uh, when they're unsure of who they are, they're unsure of their place in the world, they're unsure of what people expect of them, they're not sure how they effective they are interpersonally and socially. And, and actually, the eating disorder gives them a whole set of rules that they can measure themselves against and gives them some sense of certainty, sometimes, as you know, some sense of achievement, all of those kinds of things. When you're trying to help people uh, find a way to recover, I think you absolutely have to validate some of the functions uh, that the eating disorder serves in their life and, and then explore with them other ways that they may be able to achieve those functions that are, are better for them because ambivalence and, and, and being really intensely ambivalent about recovery is usual. Uh, I don't yeah. know that I've ever met anybody with an eating disorder. And that might be because people come to see me when they want to get better. But I, even in uh, circumstances where people haven't necessarily voluntarily come to see me, uh, once you listen carefully to people and explore things with them, everybody that I've ever spoken to would prefer not to have an eating disorder if they could have find a way out of it that met their other needs. Is the um, instance of co-occurring conditions something that's universal across mental health their mental health spectrum yes. uh, eating disorder any different to any other mental health condition that is a great question and and, and a really good point uh, but because of course uh, comorbidity or co-occurring uh, issues is is very common across everything substance use is common amongst anxiety disorders bipolar disorders schizophrenia Anxiety is ubiquitous. Everybody has some experience of anxiety. It's whether or not it's a problem. But I think the evidence is really quite strong that in eating disorders, those co-occurring mental health issues are unusually highly prevalent. Uh, depression right. with rates of up to 80%, whereas in the general population, the co-occurrence of depression with other illnesses might be 20 to 30 percent, uh, higher rates of trauma than the general population, much higher rates of anxiety, much higher rates of psychosis, Sam, than people yeah. really think about. You know, the, uh, there's, there's a really quite a significant, not high, but quite significant uh, co-occurrence of schizophrenia 
and other uh, psychotic-like illnesses uh, alongside eating disorders, uh, and, and right. that's unusual. And of course, yeah. we, you know, one of the things that we should talk about is the so-called personality disorders, and, and I say so-called because I certainly uh, don't think that's a helpful or accurate way of thinking about problems with impulsivity, problems with emotional dysregulation, uh, problems with uh, despair and hopelessness and managing uh, how you respond to distress. Those things seem to be at much higher rates in people with eating disorders than in the general population of people, say, with depression or anxiety. OCD is very high rates, PTSD. And, of course, one of the things I was hoping to talk about, because it's so big in my mind at the moment, is post-traumatic stress disorder. And we think about PTSD as being something that people who've been in combat or uh, first emergency responders might have. But it's actually common in people with recurrent episodes of other traumas, sexual trauma, uh, physical trauma, etc. And, and one of the things I think we don't talk about is the trauma of being unwell as a cause of PTSD and also the trauma of getting treatment. And when you sit and hear people talk about their experiences of treatment of eating disorders, so many of them describe very clear-cut PTSD symptoms, flashbacks, recurring nightmares, avoidance of treatment, not just because of that ambivalence that we've spoken of, but also because they've genuinely and, and, and realistically experienced uh, some of their uh, treatment experiences as quite traumatic to them. And it sounds like safety and that feeling of being okay in recovery or in trying to find recovery is a massive thing. And while we're on that, can you take us through what are the, what are the best practice approaches for treatment at the moment? That's such a huge question. Uh, treatment of what, Sam? Treatment of the co-occurring mental health issues, treatment of the eating I disorders. Help me. Well, I guess you can't, if you just treat the eating disorder, then you you are, in in most cases, not helping that person to recover because there's the other conditions that are not being treated. Well, I guess, what do, you, what do you recommend? By and large, if you can help somebody uh, improve their uh, anxiety management skills and abilities around the eating disorder, then that will generalise out into helping them with anxiety in other areas. Some of that anxiety might still need uh, some specific treatments, but essentially kind of cognitive behavioural, mindfulness-based approach to anxiety management uh, where people learn those uh, self-management skills is, is core parts of treatment. With depression, which is also so extraordinarily common, that, that's much trickier. Trickier because it's so debilitating, just as anxiety is. It's a seriously, it can be, as you know, a life-threatening illness. But the treatment of depression usually requires a combination of talking therapy, whether it's CBT, uh, other dynamic therapies, and sometimes antidepressants. And if somebody is very physically compromised, either metabolically because of the binging and purging, or uh, uh, particularly uh, 
compromised because they're very underweight, then it's almost impossible for their depression to really lift until, uh, whether it's with psychotherapy or drug treatment, until they've managed to uh, re reverse at least some of the uh, effects of starvation on the brain. Right. And, 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 so, of course, as, as somebody puts on weight, for example, with anorexia nervosa, it's, it, it's very common for them to become more and more anxious and more and more depressed. And, and, and paradoxically, that actually is the time where treatment of depression can be very successful, whereas uh, when people are very metabolically compromised, uh, treatments for depression are really hard to work. So but, but depression and anxiety, substance use problems, which are very common, uh, actually can be, you know, can be done uh, in parallel to the eating disorder. Uh, the, the, the parallel treatments might be uh, AA. You know, like I, I'm, I'm a, a big fan of the AA 12-step model. I think it works for an enormous number of people. It's the original peer-led treatments in the world, really. You know, AA was all about peers helping each other get better. Uh, people with yeah. experience. And we don't think but, of it like that so much, but it really is. You cannot abstain from food. <laughs> you, you, you totally. know, so, so the abstinence model does not work for eating disorders at all. Be no. Because if you don't eat, then you die. Um, well, uh, uh, but, I, but the abstinence model can work for substance use. Go on, Sam. This is good. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, that this is what part of the problem that I've, and I've been through OA many times and, and, you know, started oh, okay. at 12 and had not, not, not had the success that I was hoping, but I know plenty of people have gone through yeah. and, and had helped them immensely. Because it's so successful so, for so many people, you have to give it recognition. Uh, right. But, but, you know, I used to work in, uh, back in Scotland when I was uh, younger. In the, I used to work with the Scottish Council for Alcohol, and that was the, an alternate approach to AA, uh, providing people with peer uh, counselling to help them uh, find non-abstinence approaches to their alcohol or substance use. Also, really effective. So, but what I guess what I'm saying in terms of the eating disorders is that if you have a co-occurring substance use disorder, then it needs to be addressed in parallel and i often think about these things as you know once one left foot forward right foot forward left foot forward right foot forward you kind of shuffle along uh, doing a bit of work on the co-occurring issue and a bit of work on the eating disorder until you get to the point of full recovery and yeah and, right but but you cannot ignore uh, co-occurring substance use if it's present it requires treatment peer support yeah. is really helpful whichever way you go uh, well, and that's just, just exposing yourself to other people who are experiencing you know almost as the similar kind of program uh, issues not everyone's the same but yeah that's something that we've found out through this through the, the the journey of this podcast as well just the idea that talking helps absolutely oh, right and, and sam you, you know you, you've talked about OA, the oa model a little bit which which as i say i struggle with in the in in the setting of eating disorders i think for me the abstinence was the the sticking point because abstinence for me is something that 
is a massive trigger. One of the things that we, I, I wonder if we should talk about is the public health messaging around obesity in this field, in this space of co-occurring issues, because the uh, public health messaging around obesity, I think, is a co-occurring issue uh, that contributes enormously to eating disorders. And, 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 and what you just said there is, you, you, you know, I think is a really good example of how uh, when we set people up to uh, restrict or to be restrained in their eating, then you set them up for uh, a whole range of feelings of, uh, of deprivation, uh, non-nurturing, uh, a whole, you know, it, 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 it's enormously triggering not for, for many, many people, you know, like for the population as a whole, I, I actually think. You, we're, we're telling people in, a, in a, a world of massive plenty, our world in Australia yeah. is a world of massive plenty. We're designed to to eat everything that we, we can in that setting so that we're yeah. fine for later on when there's not so much food about. That that bit of the equation no longer applies to us. And so we are all restraining ourselves in, almost in, in, at every eating episode. And when we're told that we need to restrain ourselves more it, because otherwise there'll be this massive public health issue of obesity. I think it actually sets up a paradoxical response in which overeating and guilt and et cetera. So yeah. it, I don't think that's just in people who may be vulnerable to eating disorders. I think it's actually in the general population. It makes the general population more vulnerable to eating disorders. I don't know if you've got any thoughts about that. I think that a lot of it comes from a place of, you know, of genuine concern about the health issues caused by obesity and those sure. are undeniable, undeniable. Uh, yeah. no, you, you can't, you can't deny those things. But, but at the same time, I, I, I don't know. It's a very fine line to walk. There is a, I, I believe a very large portion of the population who it absolutely won't work for. And, yeah. you know, they, we, how everyone knows about calories in, calories out. Everyone, there's not a single person in the world that doesn't know that's how it works. We've got to be thinking about this differently because our messaging tends to play the person. You're eating too much. You not in, you need to take more control. You need to be more restrained because it plays the person. It sets so many vulnerable people up to developing an eating disorder. I suspect. And, and, oh, well, that's right. And, and so there is a societal issue here that, as you say, it's complicated. Uh, nobody's yeah. trying to do the wrong thing, but but we've not got it right yet. Look, I feel like we've got a whole other episode in that. <laughs> but look, let's wrap it up by can I can I ask you for what are your tips for somebody who is experiencing you know an eating disorder as well as a few other co-occurring diagnoses? What do you, what's the first thing that they should be doing? Well, I think the first thing would be always to have an expectation of full recovery. I love that phrase, full recovery, full citizenship. Uh, people who, with an eating disorder, with co-occurring, depression, anxiety, substance use, bipolar disorder, OCD, whatever it is, it's all treatable. And with good quality therapy that, that engage with and, and work towards, it will all get better. 
you know, so have yeah. hope, have an expectation that things will really recover, uh, but know that it makes things a bit more complicated and, and that you may and it may, it may take a bit more time. It may take a bit more uh, fiddling around with medication. Have faith in uh, that process because it does work. And in the meantime, do all the things that, you know, I'm sure everybody says about uh, working hard on uh, both the eating side of things, but being kind to yourself, allowing yourself to have uh, these other things that, rather than blaming yourself for having all of these problems. And, and, and know that as you recover, and as you work through all of the things that need to be worked through across these different diagnoses, it, and I know it's trite, but it, people get so much better when they, as they recover from an eating disorder. You, you, you know, and you wouldn't wish it on any, you wouldn't wish an eating disorder on anybody, would you? But goodness me, the process of recovery uh, it can be so transformative for people. Thank you so much for, for joining us. We've gone well over time, but I really do appreciate your time, Richard. Thank you very much. Okay, no worries, Sam. Thank you for having me. If you're a health professional interested in further education about eating disorders, you can contact the NEDC at nedc.com.au or anz at anzaed.org.au for more training. If you work with young people, Butterflies Prevention Services run training webinars. Look under the Schools and Youth Professionals tab on the Butterfly website. If you're a clinician and you'd like to be listed on the Butterfly Referral Database, please contact Butterfly at referrals at butterfly.org.au. And remember, help is available for anyone struggling with an eating disorder through the Butterfly Helpline on 1-800-ED-HOPE. That's 1-800-334673. And for more resources, check out butterfly.org.au. If you like this episode of the Butterfly Podcast, you might want to write a review, leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. We would really appreciate it. And remember, as always, please share it with a friend. I'm Sam Eichen. The Butterfly Podcast is an Icon Media production for Butterfly Foundation.